Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Alex Titus. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. We weren't interested in the jockeying and having it be all about the power. We wanted it to be about results. I'm a big believer in public higher education and what it can do for people and the economy of a state. I think it's important to engage and always have believed that. And OBI represents about 1,600 members that employ about 250,000 people across the state. You know, we believe that the change we're seeing in the climate is real. I mean, that's science. All right, folks, we were very excited today to interview Angela Wilhelms. Angela is the president of Oregon Business and Industry, which is the largest business group in the state of Oregon. It actually was founded about four years ago by the merger of the Oregon Business Association and AOI, two of the largest business groups at the time. And it's one of the most influential groups in Oregon politics. Angela also has a really interesting background herself in Oregon politics. She worked as the press secretary for Congressman Greg Walden. She worked as chief of staff to Representative Bruce Hanna, who eventually became co-speaker Bruce Hanna. So she served as chief of staff when he was co-speaker and when he was Republican minority leader in the House. She is an attorney who worked in private practice. And she also was the first person to ever hold the job of secretary to the board of trustees at the University of Oregon. When Oregon allowed universities to have their own local governing boards, she helped get that up and running for the U of O. So we talk a little bit about all of those things in terms of her background and how she navigated her path in Oregon politics. But we also talk about some policy issues. We talk a little bit about manufacturing. There's some big news this week with Intel. And uh, we talk a little bit about that and how Oregon could be more competitive in manufacturing. We talk about businesses' responsibilities and obligations in tending to the climate crisis that we're navigating. And we talk about Oregon and Oregon's political culture and the urban rural divide and building a sense of community and a shared narrative in this state. So we cover a lot of ground, and I think you're really going to enjoy the conversation. We certainly enjoyed having it. So if you haven't, please remember to give us a five-star rating if your platform allows it, and definitely click the subscribe button. And we also want to promo our YouTube channel. Most of our listeners are listening over on the audio format, but if you're interested in the YouTube format, check out our YouTube channel. We're getting increased growth there. So go ahead and subscribe on YouTube if you haven't yet, or keep listening on podcasts. We don't really care. We're just glad you're listening. But thanks for being with us, and let's jump right into the interview with Angela Wilhelms. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge. Today, we are very excited to bring you Angela Wilhelms. Angela, how's it going today? Good. Thanks for having me. Nice to meet you both. Yeah, it's good to have you. And where are you, I guess, well, dialing in from is not the right word, because of course, we're on video, but where are you at in the great state of Oregon today? I am in Wilsonville, which is the, you know, the good, happy medium between Portland and Salem. So we have offices in both locations. So this was a nice landing ground for me. Nice. Very good. Very good. The most manageable commute to Salem is Wilsonville. You just hop I, on. I, I get in right after all that traffic going south. And if I'm coming from Portland, I can get off I-5 right before I hit all the traffic. Yep. Yep. The perfect spot. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, you dodge a lot of traffic, which is definitely nice. So Angela, you have a really interesting background, particularly to me, because I've, well, I haven't worked at a major university before, but I did go to the University of Oregon. So may, maybe that counts as something. But we know that you worked in D.C. for Congressman Walton. You also served as chief of staff to Speaker of the House, 
Bruce, Hannah, and you spent some time at the University of Oregon working with their board of trustees. So could you fill us in a little bit kind of more on what you did with each of those roles and then how it led to your new role, which we'll talk about in just a second? Yeah, sure. Well, I I started out after college thinking I was going to do corporate finance. Um, That was going to be my career path. And then I was in the Bay Area and decided I wanted to come home to Oregon and managed to get a job working on campaigns. And like a lot of people, I think this is the story you get hooked. I had grown up around politics, but I had sort of sworn that I wasn't going to work in politics. And then once you do it, you catch the bug. So I did some campaign work and then went to work for Congressman Walden in D.C. doing communications, which was an extraordinary opportunity just for all the reasons you might think. But then when you work for a member of Congress who actually was a professional communicator, it's like getting a graduate degree while doing your job at the same time. So um, I'm grateful for that opportunity and loved being able to work for someone who represented the eastern and southern part of the state. I'm a native of Klamath Falls, so it was, it was good to be able to, to be over there. And then I got, again, I was drawn back to Oregon. I just kept wanting to come back here and live and work. And so I got back into state level politics and went to work for Representative Hannah. We joke that we had kind of an arranged marriage. Some people were like, this guy needs a chief of staff and you need a job. You two, you know, you two should meet. Have you you met yet? And so we had this kind of awkward first initial meeting in his office and it ended up being a, a tremendous, I think, seven year stint that I was able to work for him when he was the minority leader. And then this extraordinary period of time in Oregon House history, where we had the tied 3030 chamber. And rather than jockeying to see which party was going to eke out the other one for the true majority, we just split it. We designed, we redesigned the House rules and did a co-governance model, got a lot of national attention for it. And uh, it was it was an exceptional learning opportunity, and I got some good things done for the state. Before we go on from there, can, yeah, do you, what do you remember about the origins of that arrangement? Because there had been ties in the past, and in the like, I think that's actually how Peter Courtney first became Senate president. Was there was a tie, and he was like a more palatable choice to the Republicans than I believe uh, Majority Leader Kate Brown at the time. So how did this, you know what, let's just create something new, let's split it, framework, get started? You know, we didn't really spend a lot of time thinking about other models. And and I don't know what went into the the Senate negotiations in the past. I wasn't around then. But, you know, it was clear in the Republican caucus, at least, that Representative Hannah was going to be their leader Mm. and kind of in whatever form that took. And I think, you know, I don't want to speak for the other caucus, but I think he was well-respected by them. Even if they didn't agree with him, they knew him to be a pragmatic, thoughtful leader, became a budget expert. You know, he was he was good at his job. And we weren't interested in, you know, sadly, what you see a lot of in politics now, which is the jockeying and having it be all about the power. We wanted it to be about results. Mm. And so we, you know, I, I don't remember, it's funny, I haven't, I don't remember the exact sort of conversation where we all sort of said, let's do that. But it just felt like the natural thing pretty much, pretty much from the, you know, the day after the election day, you know, sure, would it have been nice to have the speakership outright? Yeah. But this, this just felt like the right solution. And Democrats had had, um, Dave Hunt had been their speaker and they emerged with Arnie Roblin from the coast as their selection for co-speaker. And I think the members just all kind of knew that these two guys together could actually do it. 
I think it requires that combination of two people who could pull it off that not everybody could could do that. Totally. Um, I don't think I've ever met someone who didn't like Arnie Roblin. <laughs> so he was I don't like, know how, I don't know how you, I'd like to talk to that person. Right. Um, I don't, I don't either. He's, he's an extraordinary person. And so, so yeah, it's a great question. I wish I could remember if there was just some specific moment, but it just kind of felt like the right path. And then of course, you know, you're, you go and talk to the the house clerk who, you know, the parliamentarian, and you try to explain what you're trying to do. And you can see like the eyes get real big and uh, we're going to, and then you tell the Senate like, Oh, Hey, don't worry about it. We're going to have, we're going to have two of everything. Don't, <laughs> don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. Nothing could possibly go wrong, but it, it, it worked. I mean, we, everything from, we even split the speakers off. Everyone thinks we inflated the speaker's office budget, but we didn't. We just split it down the middle and we got half, they got half. And and it got national, we, national we flipped a coin for the office. We did flip a coin for the speaker's office. Was that Representative Hannah? Uh, Representative Hannah got the speaker's office okay. behind the chamber. Okay. So. so very cool. So, so then you end up leaving after, I guess, after the shared session, where did you go next? Yeah. So during that session, well, just before it, and then because, you know, I hadn't prognosticated that we had been in the speaker's office. Actually, I'd gone back to grad school. So during that time, I got my JD MBA from Willamette. Mm. It's nice, you know, you can sneak out the back door of the Capitol, walk across the street, go to class, sneak back in before anyone knows you're gone. So I actually went and practiced law for, uh, I finished school and then I went and practiced law with a firm called Dunn Carney in Portland, terrific firm. They gave me a shot and they've also been very gracious because I, I didn't, Within a year, I had made the decision. Then I got approached about the job at the University of Oregon and thought that that was too unique of an opportunity to pass up. So the, the firm firm understood and they were very gracious. And I, I thought I might go back after a few years, but um, then I got sucked in at the U of O for, for seven. And I was hired there. Some of your listeners may remember in Oregon, we had the Oregon University system which had governance authority over all seven public universities. And a bill was passed in 2013, giving the universities the option to have their own board. And all seven of them said, yeah, we'll take, we'll take that door. We'll be in charge of ourselves, please. <laughs> yeah, <Thank> well, <laughs> same thing. And it, you know, it just makes sense. They're all so different. All set, you know, they're very different institutions. So the one size fits all approach was not, was not conducive. To their needs. So in 2014, Portland State, Oregon State, and the University of Oregon got their institutional boards up and running. And so I was hired as the first university secretary, but to kind of help get that going. And, you know, to there was a lot of work done before I started. I don't want to diminish that. It was a lot of preparatory work went into that, but just to figure out, you know, both operations and then also start to then wrestle with governance issues, whether it was policy work or um, strategic projects or whatnot. So I was sort of drawn to that entrepreneurial nature of that job. And I'm a big believer in public higher education and what it can do for people and the economy of a state. So it was a great opportunity to give back in that way. Mm. So, and then, um, I mean, one thing I think all those jobs have in common is uh, an element of public service. I just, I think it's important to engage and always have believed that. And so I've been proud of the work I've been able to do in those spaces. And 
you know, getting time for me to think about what was next. And uh, then the opportunity at Oregon Business and Industry opened up um, or was going to open up with the retirement of my predecessor. And, you know, I, I had gotten used to not being in Salem or around legislative politics. And that wasn't a bad thing. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I'd spent a lot of years watching what was happening, especially to the private sector and, and the treatment it was getting out of policymakers. And I, I thought, well, I'm sorry, my cat's uncontrollable. He'll make an appearance every <laughs> once in a while. We are very his name pet, is, we're pet his friendly. Name is Clyde, his name is Clyde Drexler. <laughs> uh, he, Everybody, um, now you have to check us out on YouTube so you can see the cat. <laughs> Clyde Drexler, Clyde the Glide. <laughs> Clyde the Glide. Oh, but so I just decided, you know, once again, if I'm, I can either sit around and complain about what I see happening, or I can get back involved and if this board is willing to give me the opportunity to try to help, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't take it and try to get back in the game. So it's been yeah, a and pleasure. I, I want to talk like a little bit about the timing of, of the job too, because if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, you started in last September, correct? September, 2021. Yeah, I started half time and then I started full time in October, really. Okay. So you've, you've yeah. really only been full time with the position for, I guess, three, three, four months now. You definitely come in and I would say, a very interesting time. We have a global pandemic happening. Inflation is at 7%. The employment market is like the weirdest thing I've ever seen because people are saying they can't hire people, but then there's like hundreds of people applying for jobs. still. So everything seems to be sort of crazy mismatch. And obviously I would just say things are kind of in like a general state of turmoil, especially for, for the business community. And I don't even just mean in Oregon, I mean across the country. Mm-hmm. What is sort of the general, like what is the general feeling right now of your members of, and obviously we'll, I'm sure they have comments on national affairs, but obviously we'll keep this to Oregon. But what are kind of people feeling right now? Obviously you represent both some of the largest businesses across the state, but then also some, of, some smaller organizations as well. Uh, what's kind of the general feel of things right now? Yeah, so OBI represents 83% of our members are small businesses, Mm -hmm. but we have about 1,600 members that employ about 250,000 people across the state, and they they run the gamut. We have all sectors, all geographies um, are are covered in our membership, so there's a lot, a lot going on. You know, they're, they're exhausted. That's probably the word I would use. They're They obviously, to varying degrees, depending on the business, have been impacted by this pandemic in myriad ways. Their workers have been impacted by the pandemic, and they're trying to be both good stewards for their customers and clients, but also, importantly, the people they employ and the families that those employees support. So, you know, they've been going through a lot of, of that, but then you layer on top of that some of the regulatory burdens and constructs that they're under haven't let up. In fact, more have been put on them during these times that aren't even pandemic related. So it's just this layering effect of constantly trying to know where the goalposts are and and move the ball down the field toward them. And so I think they're exhausted, but they're also optimistic. I mean, this is just, I think, something that's in the Oregon ethos. You know, we're, we're inherently optimistic people and they're, you know, so they're excited about the opportunities some sectors are seeing growth during this time and everyone's looking forward to the recovery, but they're they're challenged by to a company when I ask what's top what's top of mind or you know, front of mind for you. It's workforce, it's being able to fill positions. They can't keep up and, and fill the positions they need. 
it's the cost of doing business in Oregon. So those are the things that weigh most heavily, but but yet they still, you know, in all of our conversations, they're in it and they want to grow and they want to hire people and they're excited about the opportunity there. You kind of touched on one of the things I'm interested in. So you obviously work for a business organization in, we'll call it a deep blue state, acknowledging that uh, that doesn't fully capture <laughs> all of what Oregon is, but we've got a blue house, blue Senate, blue governor's office. And, you know, Titus mentioned the economic moment environment the political environment right now is being upended somewhat. We're going to have new legislative leadership in both chambers uh, for the next long session. We're going to have a new governor. Well, I guess for the first time since 2010, it, it seems genuinely unclear who or what party or if there will be a party represented in the governor's office. And at the same time, we're clearly not, I'm trying to think of a, uh, you know, Texas or, or, or a state that is like deep red where the you know policy agenda would look, I'm imagining, vastly different than the type of things you'll be pursuing in Oregon. So given the, you know, we talked about the economic environment, but given the political environment that Oregon's in and its tendency to be a blue state, how do you think about your policy agenda or the strategies that you'll use to pass them? I mean, are you all getting involved in elections or do you keep it to advocacy in the Capitol? And then how do you figure out what kind of proposals make sense for the Oregon context? There are about like 20 different questions. I know, I'm, I'm, as I'm so. talking, I'm like, this will not be easy, but riff on that one and we can go I'll back. Try, yeah, I'll try, I'll try to sort through it and then circle back to what I missed. Um, so I want to start first by saying I fall into the same pattern that you just did, but I, I wish we all didn't do this so much in that defining pro-business and pro-jobs and pro-growth as blue state, red state conversations, because it's just, it's really unfortunate that that's where we, I know we all go there and it's, it's natural that we do. And for us more than blue, red, for us, what's important is balance. Mm. And I think you got there in your question, which is when you have super majorities and you have longstanding majorities with a, you know, blip of an interruption of a tide chamber, you have that same party in the governor's office for decades, which then informs who gets hired and to run and, and work in agencies. So for us, it's less about the, the color that those people affiliate with and more just about the sameness of it all and the fact that it doesn't get shaken up a little bit, which is good for government, I think, to, to be shaken up and to have that accountability. The other piece is blue or red. The extreme nature of a lot of the, the politics now, this isn't just an Oregon thing. This is, you know, everywhere where more and more elections are taken care of in the primary than in the general. And so you have folks running, especially in a midterm year, running to a pretty small segment of the population in a legislative primary and then being responsive to those folks and the, the beliefs they put on the table when they ran. And the middle just kind of gets lost. And that's actually where a lot of the business community is. They're in the middle, especially in a state like Oregon, where the people who start and grow businesses here appreciate the, the histo historic nature of conservation in our state, appreciate some of the oddities of Oregon that make us who we are, you know, public beaches, the bottle bill, all that kind of stuff. So, so I just want to, you know, for us, it's about finding that middle ground and figuring out where business and where private sector employers can go and have a sort of home politically. We do engage uh, politically. We have OBI has a PAC. Um, we actually have a candidate PAC and we have an issues PAC. So we've been involved in ballot measures, but we, we do contribute to elected office, mostly legislative races. 
that tends to be where the, the bulk of the money has gone in the last couple cycles. So we will, again, we are raising money and uh, you know it's all public online. It's fully transparent so people can see who's giving, where we're spending. We haven't yet started that site, the, much of the giving yet this year, but we, we will certainly play and we will try to be impactful in restoring some balance in Salem. So then, you know, the election will happen in November and then we'll have a governor. We, we don't know who or or what their background will be. What will the, I mean, are you all basically saying you've identified workforce as a huge problem? Are you, have you identified these are the policy solutions we're going to bring to the legislature or is that dependent upon the political dynamics at the time? And if you do know what you're going to be pursuing, if you could tell us a little bit about like what what are the the policy solutions that your members are interested in for the workforce situation, for example? Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, it, no, our priorities are our priorities. We're pragmatic about, you know, how you might want to shape the details of those priorities or go about them, but we won't change our stripes based on who gets elected or not. We might change strategy a little. We might change our expectations a little, but um, but our stripes won't change. We're in the process of, we're going to develop that policy agenda over the course of the year in greater detail. So I'll be going on a roadshow after the February session. So getting around the state, meeting with local chambers, economic development folks, and, and my members, of course, to talk to them about what specifically they need out of policymakers, whether that's uh, legislators and the governor or regulators in the agencies, what specifically do they need? You know, our hope is that then we can craft a, a proactive agenda that we can hand to lawmakers and say, this is what we think um, the general business community, what the employers in your communities that you represent need. We do have a set of policy principles. They're on our website for folks to look at. We do them sort of on a, we do them on an annual basis, but really the big shifts come every biennium, as you would expect, heading into each legislative session. So, so our board will vote on those in November of this year, but you can, you can see what's on there now. You know, we want to be thoughtful. The workforce one is a, is a really interesting question. You know, there's a lot of ideas we want to, we're going to do some studying of what other states have done as well to see what best practices we can peel off of. We think there are some great ideas that are already in place where uh, private sector companies have partnered with community colleges, for example, on specific training and development opportunities. Um, so I'll come back in a, <laughs> what did I say? They're, they'll vote on them in November. I'll come back in late November or December and we Give can walk through the list in detail, but yeah. And we, you know, in, in reality, I, I won't pretend, you know, we, we will put thing proactive things on the table. We have to do a lot of defense. Um, and so there, there's a lot of things that we have to watch. And so we'll always be keeping an eye on that. And so that's why we root our work in these principles that get adopted because we don't, we don't always know what other people are going to propose that affects our employers. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're constantly prepared to keep an eye on those things as well. So Angela, one thing that Ben and I love to talk about on this show is manufacturing and manufacturing policy. And we have a couple of questions to ask you, but we know that OBI also just came out with what looked to be a pretty major study on the state of manufacturing in Oregon. So before we dive into it, can you kind of just give us a brief overview of your organization's finding on that studies and kind of what the general field looks like for manufacturers in Oregon? 
Yeah, so OBI is actually the state affiliate for the National Association of Manufacturers. So in addition to being the state chamber of commerce, which is, you know, it's very, they're all a little different in every state, but that's the easiest way to describe our base organization. We all are also that affiliate. So we, and we have over 300 manufacturing members in our ranks. And so we take that role very seriously. So last year we joined with the Oregon Business Council and commissioned Echo Northwest to do a study on the state of manufacturing. We believe it's an unsung hero in Oregon's economy. Hmm. And uh, we wanted to really understand its benefits and then think about the, the policy opportunities within that space. So a couple of the key findings, Oregon, Manufacturing in Oregon employs more than 200,000 individuals. Um, It makes up 8% of total employment in the state. You get into some specific counties, uh, I think the number is, it's about 18% of employment in Washington County, for example. So it's it's significant. And it's in most, almost every county has a significant uh, manufacturing presence. Manufacturing contributes $33 billion to the state's GDP, which is 13% of the state's GDP. I want to pause on that for a second. 8% of total jobs, it's 13% of the GDP. It's an incredibly productive sector of the economy overall. And so that shouldn't be lost on people. So we'll get, I'll come back to that in a minute, but it's highly productive economically. When we look at median wages in manufacturing, it's another thing that we, we looked at in the study. I think the, I think the median wage in Oregon is 47,000 right now. In manufacturing, it's 55,000. Wow. So that's a pretty significant jump. The other thing, when people think about manufacturing, it's like this, it's this sort of catch-all term. Manufacturing is really diverse. Food and beverage production, people don't think of that. That's manufacturing. Certainly wood products is a, is a long history, historical part of Oregon's manufacturing sector. Obviously, we have some high tech in semiconductor space and other electronics. And then we have heavy metals, which um, is a lot of times when people think manufacturing, they go straight to the sort of heavy industrial type of manufacturing. And we do have that. There's a chart in the report that actually shows the breakdown by those sort of big chunks within manufacturing. It's not exact, but it's pretty evenly spread among food and beverage, um, high-tech and electronics, heavy industrial, um, metals, et cetera, wood products, and then sort of the catch-all of other. And most people don't realize that. They think they think it's one thing or another. It's everything from your, you know, your hydro flask water bottle to the A to Z wine that you might drink to the, the plywood and the cross-laminated timber. And in Oregon, the other thing we noticed in that report, which I think is really cool, is nationally manufacturing has dipped overall. There's been a decline in overall manufacturing jobs. Yet in Oregon, we've seen an uptick of 14% in the last, I can't remember if it was 40 or 50 years, but point being a good uptick. So coming back to the thing I said about the, the highly productive piece, we wanted to know what would happen if we could grow manufacturing by 10%, manufacturing in Oregon tends to grow at about two and a half percent a year. So this is 4%. If what would happen if we could accelerate that and do do a quick jump to 10%? And I think these numbers are pretty staggering. They are probably gonna get them a little bit wrong. So listeners, forgive me. You can read the report to get the specific statistic. 65,000 new jobs 
more than half of which aren't the manufacturing jobs. Oh, the, delivery the or, yeah. Exactly. The, the people who are delivering raw materials are taking away finished product. The people um, providing food service to those folks, the, um, you know, supply, just supply chain and consumer spending. So 65,000 jobs, 9 billion in additional state GDP. Wow. And, you know, we could argue about whether this is a, a good thing or a bad thing. I'm sure conservatives versus progressives might see this differently, but we, we think it's good because it, it supports state programs. $800 million annually in new state and local revenue. Put me down as a yes and Titus yeah. as a no on that, I think. Yeah. <laughs> we'll come talk after you get, if you get elected to the legislature and have your first budgeting <laughs> sure. session. Um, I'll have some ideas for how to spend it, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, but 800, I mean, $800 million a year in new state. So so when we think about, and when you're, when you're the business, uh, the private sector employers, who often happen to be the first place the legislature goes when they want more revenue. We think this is a much more appropriate, healthy way to grow the ability to provide critical services rather than just increasing effective tax rates. Why don't we, why don't we do it while also creating jobs for people and their families and, and improving the quality of life? So it's a pretty, um, I'm glad to hear you guys like to talk about manufacturing and it, we're, we're pretty proud of our manufacturing sector in Oregon. We want more people to know about it. So we're going to be also embarking on some, some efforts to spread the word a little bit. And we think these numbers speak for themselves. But we got to be willing as a state to take advantage of this. I mean, it's not just going to fall in our lap. We got we to gotta want it. I was going to say that there is an obvious follow-up question here that I will jump in with. So our podcast is coming on the heels of Intel's big announcement that they're going to spend, Intel, an Oregon company, is going to spend $20 billion in Ohio to do a lot of manufacturing. There was some quote, you mentioned Echo Northwest. Uh, John Tapania has a quote saying, he's talking about Oregon. We're not ready for it in part because I'm not sure that there's a clear aligned vision on just how badly we want this type of development. Duncan Wise of the Oregon Business Council said this should be a wake-up call, that there's an issue here. So... Can you help us explain why an Oregon company like Intel is going to Ohio? And from what it sounded like in the reporting, I don't have any information about this, but it didn't sound like Oregon was particularly like close to getting this investment. So can you shed some light on that and maybe use that as an entree into what are the policy reforms that could enable the 10% growth that you're talking about? Yeah, so I, I I can't speak for Intel, um, obviously, but uh, but yeah, you know, it would be great to have more investment here. Um, the policy areas we focus on, and I, and I agree with Duncan and John. Duncan and I have co-authored some op-eds on this topic, and OBI is working very closely with the Oregon Business Council on this uh, these topics. You know, one of the one of the issues is land. Okay. We don't have a lot of suitable land for. And, and again, going back to how diverse manufacturing is, therefore the needs of what, of what any given manufacturing company needs out of its land can differ. Some need really deep topsoil, some need really flat land. Um, obviously uh, it's gonna vary, but regardless, we just don't have a lot of suitable land. You know, so an interesting statistic there is the site, I think the site of the Intel plant in Ohio is about 2000 acres. And the largest piece of land we have to offer, similar to what they needed, is 200. 2,000 so, Ohio versus 200 in Oregon? Yeah. 
Yeah. So is that, is that like a is that like a zoning issue? The zoning or? issue. I mean, we have a unique and perhaps antiquated land use, you know, system. So it's it's zoning. Uh, the, so the state policymakers have some work to do to think about what they want to how they want to prioritize what they want to make available. So suitable land is a big piece. We're not naive. Suitable land for industrial is only so good if you also have land that's for schools and houses and all of the ancillary services for people around them. So it's it's complicated, but but that's a big piece of the conversation. And that's not just a metro area thing. Uh, we hear that from folks in Bend and Medford and other places that suitable land is not just shovel ready, but like actually like big, you know, whether the parcels are big enough or or zoned appropriately, et cetera. Related is you know, when you have land, you need to have a transportation infrastructure, manufacturers, and, and this goes for not just, man, I mean, when we think about food and beverage manufacturing, but also agriculture, you know, or Senator Wyden said this once, and I loved it. I think he stole it from someone else, but I'll quote him, which is Oregon grows things and we make things. We're very good at that. And so, but we got to move those things. And so if a truck load of widgets is stuck on I-5 trying to get through, you know, from the somewhere in the South Willamette Valley up to the, the Port of Seattle or uh, Port of Portland. That's pretty complicated when they're they're stuck on I-5 and can't get through. So, you know, investments in transportation infrastructure. And then workforce training is a big piece of this, making it okay from a policy standpoint for folks to want really good paying jobs in manufacturing and thinking about how we can grow or accelerate access to certifications, job retraining, apprenticeship programs, you know, things that can get skilled laborers, welders, you know, folks who can, you know, build things, engineer things that aren't maybe, you know, going to a four-year university for those degrees, but they're, um, but they're getting good training and they're going to get good family wage jobs at the end of it, both from a policy standpoint, making that a priority and then and then allowing our, our schools to, to lead into that. So those are just a couple of the, the yeah. policy areas. So, um, I would also, the last one I would add is, you know, especially in the metro area, the, the layering of the taxation on businesses is hard. And so when you're thinking about, uh, if you're a company that's here and you're thinking about growing or if, if you've outgrown your facility and so you're going to have to site a new facility anyway, do you do it here or do you go somewhere else, mm-hmm. um, let alone kind of the conversation about recruitment? So one follow up here and then Titus can uh, this actually might be a good intro to Titus's next question. So land use planning started in Oregon because of Tom McCall and the. It was a ballot measure that I obviously wasn't around, but the, the intent, as my understanding, was like, we don't want to have the kind of sprawl that you see in places like Texas um, or places where there's unregulated development and growth. And part of that was like this identity that we have, at, like you mentioned, our sense of optimism, that we've also have this sense of like connection to the land and to to the environment. And so, you know, given given the last two years, but it's been longer than that, where we've seen on the left, we call it like a climate crisis. On the right, they call it drought, wildfire, you know, whatever, you know, we're experiencing the same things. And so I guess I'm curious, what role do you see the business community having in responding to 
the climate situation, whether we call it climate crisis or whether we describe it in some other way. I think we all can agree that the natural environment in Oregon is changing in a way that's threatening, frankly, to both the to the environment and to the economy. Um, so I'm curious how you and your members, because I know you you know you represent some on the business spectrum, pretty progressive folks, in, in, as well as some pretty conservative folks. So I'm interested if you have like any thoughts or reflections on where your members come down on that question. Yeah, you know, I had I had lunch with someone not too long ago, and he said that he was he's a business owner, and and he said he phrased it well. I thought where he he said you know, I've really learned that the OG conservationists are the timber guys from <laughs> rural parts of Oregon. This is a, this is a guy who grew up in Portland. He was from Portland. His business is in Portland. And it's, you know, I think you're right. There is this, um, there is this inherent uh, love of protecting the land and because we, what we've got is extraordinary here. And so I think we grow up here, and even if you if you come here from somewhere else, you very quickly realize that that protecting that is a big part of our obligation. And it's, you know, we're, we're the weirdos who walk around some other state because we can't, you know, we, there isn't a recycling bin on the, every corner. <laughs> and so we'll walk around for five hours with an empty water bottle because we won't put it in a trash bin. You know, that's we just don't even think twice about that. So... Um, I think that regardless of, of place on the, the political spectrum, most Oregonians I know have that inherently in them. And, you know, we believe that the change we're seeing in the climate is real. I mean, that's science. It's not, you know, let's not go down that rabbit hole today. But um, we raise an interesting question. And what I would challenge policymakers to think of is this, as you think about policy that is meant to address or mitigate um, address climate change or mitigate the, the, you know, harms from certain activities, you can't do it in a vacuum. And um, so if you are, if you're thinking about policies that are simply going to move the very same activity to some place not too far from Oregon across what is really an arbitrary boundary that someone wants decided should be the state lines of Oregon. Um, Are you actually helping the cause of climate change or are you actually doing nothing to help the cause and you are also at the same time creating economic harm to the state? Um, Are you potentially driving an, an operation to a place where they're not gonna have the same ethos and, um, operate with the same care than they would as they would in Oregon. So I think it's just important that we think about this um, holistically. I think uh, the other thing is, you know, sometimes, um, I mean, there's a lot going on in, in government. There's a lot of different jurisdictions. There's a lot of agencies within those jurisdictions. I don't expect them to all know what the other is doing at all times, but, the, the layering effect can be problematic. It can sometimes, things can be at odds with each other. We've, we've seen instances where, um, I'm not, I won't get into any specific company examples here, but where you have um, a state policy or, or a desire for a state policy that does X and you have a company that wants to do that, but yet they can't get a permit from DEQ to, to locate in Oregon. 
And so um, we're just, we're sometimes working against ourselves. Uh, so that it just, for us, it's, it's people need to think about it holistically. Um, they need to understand the long-term and downstream effects of what they're doing. Um, at the end of the day, we all still need goods and services. And so doing that in a more responsible way, sure, that's great. Our, our, our folks are thinking about that all the time. You know, one avenue that they're, they're thinking about a lot is the, the federal efforts around reshoring domestic production of goods and services. Does everything have to get, you know, shipped across the Pacific Ocean? Maybe not. Um, yeah, is fact, that good for climate? Yeah. And what Titus and I have talked about is it's actually a national security concern that we have to ship a lot of these things overseas as the pandemic has demonstrated. But yeah, Titus, you should jump in with the next question. Yeah, so and sort sort of in the well, kind of a similar vein that Ben has been asking before. But one issue that we focus a lot on this podcast is the urban rural divide. And basically what I mean by that is that urban areas tend to be getting higher population, richer, better education, and a lot of rural communities, not just in Oregon, but across the country, tend to be losing population, education systems continue to be getting worse, and there just seems to be sort of a lack of opportunity, especially when it comes to good paying jobs and things like that. I'm curious of how if that's an issue that you all have thought about, or if that's something that you work on in terms of like, what is the role for the business community and, you know, helping to kind of rebuild some of these rural communities, especially some of them that have been hit by, you know, the loss of timber jobs or the loss of, of uh, fishing or agriculture and things like that. Curious if that's something that you all have, have started working on. Yeah. I mean, it's important. It's important to me personally. It's important to the organization. You know, like I said, at the top of the show, I work, I worked for, Greg Walden and Bruce Hanna, who collectively probably represented two thirds of the state, I don't know, um, a lot of small rural communities and a lot of communities. Um, and when I worked for them in sort of the, the, the mid 2000s and on, those communities were reeling from policy decisions from I guess the last century, last millennium, shall we be dramatic? Yeah. But the, but yeah, so it's, it's really important so yes, it's, it's important to our members, about half of our members are outside of the Portland member, the Portland metro area. So it, it comes up a lot. It is a challenge, and this goes back to that piece about balance in the legislature and balance in the state, educating folks on just how impacted rural communities are from seemingly small changes or po policy changes it's hard, it's hard to draw that picture. So one of the things, you know, we'd like to do is get more people out um, an exchange program, if you will, take people from Coos Bay to Pendleton and from Pendleton down to um, Klamath Falls and from Klamath Falls up to Bend and Bend over to Astoria, you know, just bounce people around the state so they can understand how, how different parts of the state are, but really also how, how much um, they have in common when it comes to the issues that, that drive policy decisions. We are, um, so again, this land use conversation, I think is one that is, is of interest to rural communities because it's not just a metro area thing. Uh, the transportation piece is really important. If those, those rural communities are growing things and making things also, but they can't do that if they can't get their goods, um, you know, to, to parts of the state where they're either crossing into another state or going to the port. Um, so that's really important for us. That's a statewide a statewide solution. Like I said, the manufacturing conversation, um, I think it's 32, 33 counties 
have manufacturing as a strong presence, um, no less than 4%. And so um, thinking about what we can do for manufacturing in those communities is important. Um, and then the educational opportunities. Uh, I, we, you know, our hope is that with infrastructure investments that were that are coming to the state, and uh, hopefully what will happen with broadband, statewide broadband as a result of that, and then the advent of, of a greater comfort around remote learning um, and technology, we can uh, we can educate people where they are without drawing them out of their communities. Um, so, you know, there, there is a lot, it's very important to us. Do we have a silver bullet? No, but I think the first, the first thing to me is just making sure people are even aware um, of, of what it's like to be in a community that's um, no less, you know, no more than a few thousand people and, and pretty far from the next place over. That's something that a lot of folks in Oregon don't, they, they, I can't fault them, they just don't know. They can't, they can't, they don't have that context. Mm. So my, my follow-up question, and this will be the last one for me, is... Uh, Are you going to put 20 questions in here like you did earlier? <laughs> you your, probably, yeah. So your last one is, is actually 20 last ones? Yeah. It, which is actually just means that you can pick your favorite and just okay, <laughs> answer whichever one. So we have talked about the major political transitions in the state. And, you know, Titus mentioned... Titus and I have slightly different definitions of the urban-rural divide. Like, I think part of the urban-rural divide is also this lack of... A shared narrative, lack of a shared community as a state, um, lack of togetherness. And so part of the, I mean, there's definitely challenges with big political transitions. There's institutional memory that's lost. There's potential like massive shifts in uh, strategic directions, but there is an, also a fresh start part of this where perhaps there's an opportunity for us to try to start to build. And I'm talking sort of like separate from policy, right? Like we're going to fight over policy always, but I think there have to be some solutions beyond that that build relate kind of like what you're talking about, building relationships across the state, building a common set of understanding, building a common set of facts. So, you know, as you know, the business industry has traditionally been one of the major players in the Oregon political scene. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on building a greater sense of togetherness in Oregon and, you know, whether it be a recommendation for the next governor or something that you and your organization could do or is thinking about doing, what are your thoughts on building a greater sense of community and togetherness in Oregon? Yeah. I mean, yes. Period. Does that count as a <laughs> <laughs> No, it, it's really important. And you know, back in the good old days, so I can sound super old, but <laughs> no, so my father was in the legislature mostly before I was born. So this wasn't relevant to me because I was, not around or in diapers. And so who was your, your dad? At Gary Wilhelms. He represented okay. Klamath Falls. Okay, cool. Uh, during the, the 70s. And so, you know, I grew up and then he became a, he left the legislature and became a lobbyist. And I grew up watching people interact with each other who weren't from the same party, who were from different parts of the state. It was very natural. They would have dinner together. They would socialize together. Us kids would play together. Hmm. Um, they would they would banter and joke, and then sit down and do the hard work um, from a place of mutual respect. If if they couldn't quite get to mutual understanding, they could at least get to to mutual respect. Um, they would host each other in um, their districts to understand uh, these issues. Um, and that was a decade where I mean, there were big things, you know, land use. <laughs> 
speeches, bottles, you know, all that kind of stuff. And um, so it, it was always, that was always sort of the norm. And that's what I thought it was always about. And it's disappointing that, that less of that happens. And we could chalk it up to a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, everyone is busier, everyone's at home on their own, you know, computers and, and um, whatnot. And uh, it's, um, things have gotten more extreme and, you know, there's, a, there's probably a lot of political scientists doing research on this because I don't think this is just an Oregon thing. But yeah, I think it's really important. And I, I want our organization to play a role in trying to get back to some of that. So that's when I talk about this kind of exchange program idea, or when we do a, um, you know, when, when we get out and about and do tours of, of manufacturing facilities, I want people who, you know, I'd love to have Speaker Rayfield from Corvallis, you know, um, over in, you know, LeGrand or Medford with us, um, seeing what's going on. Um, so those invitations will be forthcoming. I'm, my staff's <laughs> probably mad because I'm, uh, you know, completely ahead of myself here. But um, but I, I think it's really important um, because there is, you know, people, de people define the rural urban divide as east-west or valley or not, or Portland and re the rest of the state. People um, define it as size or, or red, red county, blue county. I mean, you're right define it a bunch of different ways um and we're it's just not helpful to us um to do that anymore so i i hope that we can um bridge that i want to work um, i'm really excited to get to know and to work with my uh my colleagues who are at the local chambers of commerce and who really have a pulse on what's happening in cities big and small across the the state regional economic development offices, because I, I think people will find there's more in common. And if we can, if, if I can spend, you know, my first year on the job, which would bring me to about October of this fall, if I can spend my first year doing some of that and listening, and then present some ideas to the incoming governor, whoever that's going to be, I'll consider that a, a victory. Um, and, and I hope I hope whoever that is will have spent time in those counties and not just in the um, areas where the, the most votes are, for example. Thank yeah. you for that. No, it's a, a, that's, a, that's a really great idea. And yeah, we look forward to seeing uh, how, how that plays out and having a Republican in the governor's mansion. Wait a so. minute, wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna let you two fight that out. <laughs> yeah, that'll, that'll be one for Ben and I. Uh, but Angela, thanks again uh, so much for coming on the show. Uh, it was great to have you. Uh, and before we let you go, uh, this is the time to, uh, of course, we will put the links to the uh, studies we talked about before in the link to the podcast so that everybody can go and check those out. But uh, if folks want to follow your work or they want to follow you or they want to find out more about what OBI is doing, uh, where do they go to find all that stuff? Oregonbusinessindustry.com. So... Uh, that they can find us there. Um, we are uh, doing some revamping. So if people have suggestions about what they see or don't see on that website or on the socials, let us know. Now's the time. But they can find our reports, our policy, our policy principles, links to staff, um, all, all sorts of information. Great. And I, I can tell that the, the comms team had you well prepped because the website was just <laughs> perfectly succinct. So <laughs> yeah, very good on them. Uh, but Angela, thanks again uh, so, so much for joining and everybody. Thanks again for listening. 
Uh, please make sure to check us out on YouTube. Uh, you'll also have the opportunity to briefly see Angela's cat. So that's always a plus uh, to be able to add more animals to the show. And please make sure to give us five stars if your platform does allow. And uh, we'll see you in the next episode. See you, everyone. Thank you both.